Welcome to The Remedy, brought to you by NYC Health and Hospitals, innovating public health care to benefit all New Yorkers. Hey, it's Michael Shen. Every New Yorker deserves to live a healthy life, and access to great health care is closer than you might think. Over the years, New York City Health and Hospitals has consistently risen to the challenge of battling things like Ebola, COVID-19, and Mpox, all with the goal of staying ahead of the latest health crisis. Our show today, ready for the next pandemic. I'm excited to be joined by two doctors who lead how our system responds to emergencies. Dr. Syra Madad, Senior Director of our System-Wide Special Pathogens Program, and Dr. Richard James Salway, Senior Director of Emergency Management in our Office of Quality and Safety. Together, we're going to be talking about how New York City Health and Hospital's elite emergency management team is preparing for the next pandemic and keeping New Yorkers safe and healthy. Welcome, Dr. Madad and Dr. Salway. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Great to talk to you today. This is something I've always wanted to know about how we respond to kind of the greater challenges that reach our city as a public hospital system and as, you know, a big system that takes care of New York in general. I wanted to start a little bit about each of your roles. Syra, can you tell me a little bit about what you do in our hospital system? Yeah, absolutely. So my program sits within emergency management. And when you think of emergency management, you can think of five phases. You can think of preparedness mitigation, response, recovery. And you can, you know, throw in prevention in there as well. So leading the system-wide special pathogens program, we're involved in all of those aspects. And to give you an example, when we see an outbreak on the horizon, we're monitoring that situation. We're seeing what's happening in that country. We provide updates to our own healthcare system leaders, and we're preparing for plans and protocols should that disease make its way to New York City and through our doors. And then if we do see that case, we're in response mode, and then hopefully we get into recovery mode. So my program spans across all those five phases. That's really cool. James? Thanks, Michael. So I oversee the clinical operations side of emergency management. So that really looks at when our organization is facing some of these hazards and needs to respond to them. We need to kind of evaluate how they impact our day-to-day operations, right? How do they impact our patients? How do they impact our staff? How do they impact our clinicians in the way that we're able to provide care? And so a lot of that actually, as I mentioned, really does also involve preparedness, right? It's making sure that our hospitals are prepared to handle different types of events that may directly impact the way that that we are able to serve our patients. And I'm also a, a practicing emergency medicine physician. I work primarily at Kings County, but also do some shifts at Lincoln Hospital and other places kind of throughout our system as well. So I have the luxury and the, the honor of being able to, to also work kind of right on the front lines with many of our staff and see directly the way that they're able to respond and react to things that come up on an unfortunately regular basis at a New York Health City Health yeah. Hospital. I mean, speaking of things that come up at a regular basis, I think when we say the word pandemic, a lot of us are just thinking COVID now, right? But when we talk about pandemics, it's also, you know, we think about epidemics, we think about things that come to large populations and can infect large populations. And we've dealt with lots of outbreaks before. Sarah, can you tell us how we've 
even before COVID-19, have been preparing for these viruses, for these diseases? Yeah, excellent question. So I would say New York City Health and Hospitals is no stranger to epidemics and pandemics. And actually, our history shows that. So, you know, dating back to the very first oldest running public hospital in America, which is Bellevue Hospital, combating smallpox, yellow fever, cholera to AIDS, and even our nursing homes. So if you look at the history of Seaview, which is a long-term care facility, it was one of the largest sanatoriums that was used to treat tuberculosis patients. And in fact, I had the pleasure of going to Seaview a couple of years ago, and they have an amazing healthcare museum there where they have artifacts and they have different tools that were used to help treat TB patients. And so, you know, our facilities have a very rich history in responding to various epidemics and pandemics. What's unfortunate is that we live in an age of epidemics and pandemics that are happening at a much more accelerated rate. And not only are they happening at a much more accelerated rate, their intensity has also significantly increased. And what I mean by that is just in this past year, just think about the different outbreaks we face here in the United States, MPOX, polio. There was Marburg in Tanzania and Equatorial Guinea, COVID-19, right? These are all things we just faced this past year. And that goes to show you that these outbreaks are happening faster and they're moving around the world much more swiftly. To be honest, I don't think I even really knew that those were so high on the radar. Can you remind me where Seaview is again? It's in Staten Island. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think our, our hospital system is so big, sometimes I get lost and For forget. Sure. But, you know, we have such a large reach and we have to think about all the different places that we touch. So, yeah, I think the population of New York City is, what, eight going on nine million. We're one of the densest cities. We have two major airports, a third if you count Newark. And we're a major entry point for a lot of different things. This is a question for both of you. How do we think about the preparedness of such a major kind of economic city with so many people, densely packed? How do we as a public hospital system think about that? You know, when there's things that are happening that are scary, right, that are unknown, that people don't know which way to turn, they're not sure how to respond, you turn to people that you know and you trust. You turn to the same place that you've been going for all your care for the last 20 odd years, right? So whether you're from Guyana or from Egypt or from Connecticut, right? When you're faced with an unknown situation, you go to the place that you know and the place that you love and the people that you trust. And for New Yorkers, New York City Health and Hospitals, you know, we are those people. We are in the community. And I think that really helps us both prepare that community because they trust us, but it also helps us respond with them so that we're working hand in hand to kind of face these challenges compared to moving in opposite directions. Yeah. And that was very beautiful, said James. And I think just to add more to that, from the context of just the geographic location of New York City being obviously a huge urban environment, millions of people living here, New York City really is a gateway to the world. And as we look at travelers coming to New York City, when we had you know Ebola epidemics previously, the United States often funnels passengers coming from that outbreak country to five U.S. airports in the United States. And those five airports include New York, Newark, and then the other three, Atlanta, Chicago, Washington, Dallas Airport. So out of those five, mm. two are located in New York City. And that really shows that New York City certainly gets the bolus of a lot of these passengers that often come for many of these countries, depending on what outbreak is happening where. And so it's really important that New York City continues to be prepared 
and maintains that resilience because we know we're going to continue to get these different infectious diseases. In fact, if you look at one of the largest measles epidemic in New York City history, it happened in 2018, 2019. And how did it start? It started from a child who came from Israel who had measles, and that started the measles epidemic here in New York City. Same thing with mpox, right? Mpox was an infectious disease that we didn't normally see in the United States. It was endemic in Africa. And it was because of travel that this virus hitched a ride in people and it made its way to the United States as well as 100 other countries around the world. So a lot of times, a lot of these diseases are coming through the globalization that we see in today's world. And so New York City is at the forefront of that. So making sure that our clinicians understand what's happening around them and that we have good processes in place to be able to identify these patients and to be able to care for them in a timely manner is really, really important. And the one thing that I'm really proud of working here in New York City Health and Hospitals is that when we develop any resources for our patients to know, hey, did you go to this country? Do you have these signs and symptoms? If so, let us know. We translate that into 14 different languages, at least 14 different languages, because we serve such a diverse patient population that we want to make sure we're catering to all of them. And so that's really amazing that we, the patients we serve, we make sure that it's in a language that they can understand. How did COVID change how we thought about our system and our response to a pandemic? Well, that's an excellent question because if I compare it to the case of Ebola we had in 2014, so Mm -hmm. New York City had the single confirmed Ebola case and it was treated at New York City Health and Hospitals, Mm -hmm. Bellevue, where they have a biocontainment unit. The strategy there across the United States was containment, meaning we cannot have community spread of Ebola. We need to contain it within Mm. our doors and make sure we don't see community transmission. COVID-19 was a complete game changer. It wasn't about containment. We couldn't Mm. contain a respiratory virus that was already spreading so widely in our community. The name of the game was mitigation. How do you reduce the number of people getting sick? How do you reduce the number of people getting hospitalized? And how do you reduce the number of people dying? And so this was not just one hospital on the front lines. It was every hospital on the front Mm -hmm. lines. So that really changed perspective. And so the response was very much all hands on deck. And James can certainly speak to, as an ED physician, the craziness that unfolded in the war zone that, you know, our EDs face at that time. It's cool talking to you now because... I was a second-year internal medicine resident at Bellevue when COVID hit. And I remember making a personal recording to myself, like how freaked out I was that we were going to see this surge. Everybody knew it was coming. And I didn't know that I was going to get to talk to the person who like thought about how that response might look like. And I'm wondering, where were you, James, during that time? Were you also leading the charge or were you on the front lines? Or So I had actually come into my role at emergency management two months before COVID came. Mm -hmm. And somewhat ironically, I had actually just had hip surgery about two weeks before the first case. Mm, Okay. So then during the height of the COVID surge, I was actually in PPE on crutches in Kings County, a part of emergency department, while also coming to grips with what exactly my role from a emergency management perspective Mm -hmm. was because everything was changing so fast. I think, you know, the thing that set COVID apart from a lot of the other diseases that we've spoken about is the fact in the same way that COVID touched every aspect of American life, Mm -hmm. right? It touched every aspect of hospital and healthcare functioning, yeah. from meal service preparation to cleaning the hallways to visitors being able to come in and see their loved ones beyond just the actual clinical side of how do we treat these patients? What works? What doesn't work? Everything was changing so fast. It was beyond just being like an all hands where everyone needed to get involved, it was all encompassing, right? There was nothing but COVID for everyone 
every moment of every day for that period. And speaking about how we prepare ourselves, I think practice makes perfect in many fields. And so, Syrah, I know that we run simulations on these things. And I think there's something called a Marburg training exercise. I don't even know what that is. Can you tell me about that? Oh, absolutely. Well, the first is we need to make sure we provide ongoing training to our frontline providers when it comes to even these exotic infectious diseases like Marburg to something that's more routine to COVID-19, giving those refreshers. Because, you know, we live in a world where you can travel around the globe in less than 24 hours. And it's not just people traveling. It's viruses and bacteria and microbes that travel with people. And if you look at history, right, it kind of shows you different examples of that. And so what we do is we put on a number of different simulations and trainings for Mm -hmm. our clinicians. So we recently did one on Marburg. We actually did a full-scale exercise this past year where we worked with our local public health department and our state public health department and even CDC. And we mobilized fake patients. I actually have a very robust special pathogen internship program. So we have our interns who actually are our fake actors and they've been amazing and they love it. I mean, it's, it's a, an awesome experience. Oh, that's really they get cool. like really into the role. They get really into the role. They'll put like moulage makeup on to, you know, mimic rashes. Oh. And, you know, like they really get into the, the, you know, the, fun, the whole actually. character. So we mobilized a very large number of people to do a Marburg full-scale exercise across New York City Health and Hospitals. It took over 200 people to do a one-day long exercise. And it tested over 20 different components of our protocols and processes. And that's just one example. And we do this every year. We do at least one full-scale exercise on a special pathogen based on the threat that we're seeing around the world. Mm -hmm. And then just a couple of months ago, we did a loss of fever simulation where we recruited clinicians from throughout the health system. And we practiced our new protocol on how to collect specimens if we suspect a patient may have loss of fever. And why did we choose loss of fever is because there's an ongoing epidemic of loss of fever in West Africa. And so we know that these cases may present, right? We don't know where or when, but we know it will. And so we'd rather be prepared and make sure our clinicians have at least some sort of training to be able to respond safely to protect themselves and our patients and the staff around us. And you mentioned all these names of different diseases that we might not know about. I heard you have a list that you curate every week that even our national folks who are looking out for the country use. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So we live in a world where every day there's sometimes a new outbreak happening. And it's hard for healthcare workers to keep up with everything that's happening. I mean, if you ask a healthcare worker today, let's we can ask James today, like name five outbreaks happening around the world. <laughs> it may be difficult and you can't keep up because things yeah. are constantly changing. And what's important is that we need to give these tools to our clinicians in terms of what is happening around them. And if a patient presents, what do you need to do to quickly identify them and isolate them. So my team, we constantly do surveillance around the world and we look at what outbreaks are happening. And we produce this at least once a month, monthly report of outbreaks. And it's those outbreaks that if a case presents to our emergency department or point of entry, we need to identify this case right away. And we need to isolate because there's a high risk of secondary transmission or person-to-person transmission. (laughs) So you'll see measles on that list. You'll see if there's loss of fever or any other viral hemorrhagic fever. You'll see mpox, things like that. And we produce this monthly list and we share it with our all our clinicians. We built it into our Epic EMR system. So if a patient does present and they say they've traveled in the last 21 days to a country that's reporting an outbreak on our list, a BPA or a pop-up 
you know, comes up on the clinician mm-hmm. screen. And then the same list is also used at the national level. So we have a number of hospital systems that are utilizing this list. So they download it from our Region 2 website. And we have at the national level, the National Emerging Special Pathogen Treatment Education Center that also utilizes this list and shares it with the over 6,000 hospitals we have across the United States. Wow. So it's a great list for us to produce. It's very effective and it's handy. And, you know, it's something that we, it gives us an, an idea of what, what is happening at mm-hmm. any given time. In the future, I'm just going to refer to this as the list. <laughs> yeah. And um, can I get on the listserv? Absolutely. <laughs> I am more than happy to add you to our listserv. Wonderful. It might cause you some sleepless nights, though. Yeah. yeah just a little bit. Maybe, you know, we're prepared, I think is the point. And speaking of things that have happened to me, not to me, but like in my life, I work at Woodhull Hospital. When we had the flooding of Woodhull Hospital that occurred just two months ago now. Mm-hmm where I think it was the first time in many years that we had to evacuate the hospital because of a weather event. And so James, I, you know, I know that beyond pandemics, we also have to be responsive to things like, you know, in the past, like Superstorm Sandy, flooding of my hospital. Can you tell me how we coordinate that? What goes through your mind when you have to lead that kind of charge? So the Woodhall event really was, I think, a fantastic representation of the way that emergency management is supposed to work was the combination of the facility teams taking the lead, being on the ground, knowing exactly what's happening and what needs to be done at the hospital. And then with the central office emergency management helping to support them and bringing in the resources. Yeah. So the staff, the leadership at Woodhall and everyone at Woodhall was, it was just an incredible effort on their part, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, once it became obvious after conversations with various different utility companies, et cetera, that you know, an evacuation was going to become necessary. There wasn't any dilly-dallying, right? Everyone understood the magnitude of what was facing for us. And luckily, we had the advantage of time. Mm-hmm. It wasn't something that had to be done in the next 20 minutes. We knew that we had a good solid day to get all our patients out. And the rest of the system really just stepped up. Every single major facility raised their hand and said, you know, we were able to accept patients, even though, you know, everyone is dealing with their own capacity issues and strain, but literally every single, every single hospital accepted patients from Woodhall, helped us coordinate their transfers. Over a 12 hour period, we got around 145 patients out of Woodhall. There were no adverse patient effects, no safety issues. Everyone almost immediately started being really excited about coming back to Woodhall, right? The (laughs) patients as they were leaving were like, keep my room warm, you know, I'm coming back. Yeah, And then, you know, we managed to, again, with kind of incredible coordination between the Office of Facilities and everyone at Woodhall, managed to get that hospital back online in, in less than a week and then got all the patients back less than a week after that. Yeah. So it really was, again, I think it really showed kind of similar to COVID, like what New York City Health and Hospitals is capable of doing mm-hmm. when the magnitude of the situation is is really becomes apparent and everyone knows what has to be done. There's no question. It just it gets done. You know, there's a lot of information out there about infectious disease outbreaks and pandemics. This is a question for both of you. What advice can you give to New Yorkers on getting accurate information in a crisis situation? Yeah, that's a really important question because there is so much mis- and disinformation and we are living in an age of mis- and disinformation. In fact, if you look at the stats, misinformation travels six times faster than facts, which means really? that it's reaching more people faster and so we're constantly having to play catch up. So it's because of social media. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we live in an age of social media, right? But I think it's really important to emphasize trusted sources of information. Healthcare systems 
are one of the biggest trusted sources of information because we're here to treat patients. We're here to make the community better. So the clinicians that work and the staff that work in healthcare systems, you know, they are trusted messengers. Those are people that are educated and can speak to what is happening, most of them, depending on, on their role and what their profession is. And so A is going to trusted sources of information like healthcare systems, going to public health departments. Our local public health department is one of the best public health departments in the world. Not only is it the most resource. It's actually the best in what it does and provides a lot of great information. And then our federal websites, CDC, FDA, right? These are all trusted sources of information. And one thing that I often tell my friends and family is when you look at a piece of information, use the 5W approach. Who is saying it? Why are they saying it? What are they saying it? When was this said? Right. So evaluate through those five W's to get a sense of, is this real? Is this something that someone just wrote because they're trying to profit off of it? When did they write it? So it's really important to really evaluate your sources of information and go to trusted sources. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of misinformation out there. And I often field questions in the office as well about all sorts of different things. But in particular, now that it's respiratory season, a lot about what's going around. So I, I really appreciate that. James, I have a question for you. Can you share any current initiatives or ongoing projects within your department, emergency management, that showcase how New York City Health and Hospitals is committed to pandemic preparedness? Yeah, I mean, one of our most recent kind of areas of focus has been looking at our pediatric population, right? We know that last year we experienced, you know, what was widely described as the triple endemic, if yeah. you will, right, of this kind of convergence of RSV, influenza, and COVID kind of all peaking kind of simultaneously and, and a little bit off schedule, right? Yeah. Which kind of took everyone by a little bit by surprise and really, you know, ended up bringing a lot of worried parents and sick kids as well, right? Into our clinics, into our emergency departments, et cetera, right? And because of these, you know, we know we, we see regularly, right, this time of year, kids are in school, everyone's got a runny nose. We regularly see like a, a fair surge of, of pediatric patients, but this was something different and special right. last year that happened, right? And it was concerning, right, that a lot of children's hospitals were kind of overwhelmed. So we took some of the lessons that we learned from managing that event last year and have kind of incorporated them into the way we're approaching this year's respiratory season, right? We have kind of a specialized team of pediatric SMEs or medical experts, if you will, right, who are across different service lines from the PICU to pediatric outpatients to on the front line, the nursing staff who kind of all got to get together on a regular basis and help us kind of pick apart what is happening in the pediatric population right now. What are some of the considerations we need to take as far as like, do we need to stock up on certain types of medications? Are we seeing an increase in one type of viral illness versus another, right? And then how do we respond to that, right? What are the, some of the options out there? There's new novel treatments and preventative vaccinations for things like RSV. There's always new things coming out regarding COVID-19. And then everyone loves the flu. So really what we're looking at is saying, hey, that triplodemic, if you will, you know, that really we're hoping was a rare occurrence, but recognizing that we are seeing more and more kind of of these surges that occur with some seasonality, how can we prepare ahead of time and make sure that we have adequate resources and staff and knowledge base, right, to respond when they occur again? Mm. So, you know, I'm already seeing it in my office, not just our patients, but our staff members as well. A lot of people getting sick with some kind of upper respiratory infection. What are we looking at this year for the winter? <laughs> 
Yeah, we're already seeing high levels of viral activity of COVID, flu, and RSV. I think right now, as we stand, RSV luckily is a little bit declining, which is good news. But flu is definitely accelerating quite fast. So is COVID-19. And I think what's worrisome is we haven't really seen the peak of all three yet. So we're still knee-deep in this year's respiratory season. We probably won't see the peak until sometime after Christmas, maybe even after that, because usually we start seeing many of these viruses peak pre-pandemic, you know, into January or late January or even February. It's hard to tell what's going to happen, you know, this season because each season is so different. So it's really important. And as James mentioned, we know we have these tools, preventative tools, vaccines, therapeutics. It's really important to know whether you're eligible for it. So, you know, if you're over the age of six months, you should get a flu shot. For COVID-19 vaccines, we have updated monovalent vaccines, which actually are a good match to the circulating strain. I know one thing that's making headlines is the subvariant JN.1, but our current vaccine certainly provides good protection. And then there's the preventative RSV vaccine. So, I think it's important that people understand that there are tools out there. You should seek them. If you have questions, go to a trusted source of information and get your questions answered and protect yourself, protect your family, protect your loved ones. So I also heard that there's a book coming out that our hospital system is publishing, and both of you were co-authors on that, and it's about our pandemic response. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the book is 22 chapters long, and it comes out in the first quarter of 2024. And it details New York City Health and Hospital's heroic response to this catastrophic COVID-19 pandemic that was a protracted mass casualty event that we've all experienced. And it shares many of the unsung heroes of the pandemic, from our frontline providers to our EVS and dietary staff members. It details everything from how to stand up an ED action team that James was part of to increasing ICU bed capacity to standing up one of the largest fleet of contact tracers in the United States. And so it's a book for healthcare systems and emergency managers to look back and see how did the largest public health system in the United States respond? And then what can we take away as lessons learned and best practices? So when we face another event like this, and hopefully we never do, but this is why we prepare for it, we have an infrastructure in place. Wonderful. Just to wrap up, this is really interesting. I've, I've learned so much. So you both lead our emergency response across the system. That's a huge responsibility. And it seems like it would come up with, you know, a lot of stress as well. But I wanted to know, what do you love about your job? For me, I think it's relative, right? If you are trained and spend most of your time dealing with the unexpected, it doesn't become so unexpected anymore. Yeah. Right? You become very comfortable with everything being turned upside down at a moment's notice, yeah. right? So that doesn't really hold that much stress for me anymore. I have two small infants. <laughs> the organized chaos of an emergency yeah. department has nothing on like an average trying to get everyone out the door before 8 a.m. morning okay, in my yeah. household. So I, I go to work <laughs> to relieve stress, to be honest with you. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, I think for me, A, I love what I do and... One example I can give is when I was part of the biothreat team in Texas when we had the initial Ebola cases in Texas in, you know, in 2014. It was my team that responded to that epidemic. And, you know, when that outbreak ended, you know, we had a little Ebola appreciation party. Like literally that was the name on my calendar. It was hilarious. <laughs> but in a card that I got from colleagues, they had mentioned, you know, people run away from these things. You ran towards it. Like, are you crazy? And it really shows like, I mean, I I love what I do, but 
not only because of the type of work, but it's also the people that I work with. Yes, we're in a high stressful environment and we're constantly monitoring different things, but it's the people that you work with that really make it for me. So James is an amazing colleague. If you could see him, and this is a podcast, he's wearing an ugly sweater today. And um, <laughs> we're going to be going out later to kind of, you know, de-stress. And so it's really the people like him and the team that I work with that really help day in and day out and, and make this place as great as it is. And socks with his kids' faces that's, printed that's on exactly them. Right. So yeah, I, I knew this was audio only, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have today. I wanted to say a big thank you to both Dr. Syra Madad and Dr. Richard James Salway for joining us on the show today. It was a pleasure, Michael. It's a lot of fun. It's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks as well to you for listening. Please remember to leave a review and subscribe as we're just getting started. I'm Dr. Michael Shen, and this has been The Remedy, brought to you by NYC Health and Hospitals. See you next time.